Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith podcast with Michael Lane. If you're enjoying our content and would like to help us keep making more episodes on this podcast, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And while you're on the website, make sure to check out some of the other things we got going on, like our specialty programs. We've got one in marine biology, which is an entire marine biology course down in the Florida Keys. And it's great for students ages 14 and up. We also have our biblical archaeology tour in Israel with archaeologists Dr. Stephen Notley. That's coming up very, very soon. So make sure to check those out. And we also have our bookings calendar open. So if you're looking for a speaker to come speak at your event, church, group, school, whatever it may be, make sure to get in your request in right away. And finally, if you have enjoyed a particular series on this podcast, or you want to go back and look at a particular episode, our courses page has every single series we've ever done on the podcast nicely organized in its own course page. And sometimes there's a few extra little downloads and things you can use if you want to go back and study a particular series or share it with a friend or a family. All these links are going to be down in the description if you want to refer back to them after you're done listening to today's episode. And with that, thanks for being here and I'll let Michael take it away. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. As we're doing a series on apologetics, basic apologetics of the Bible, here's a question. Is our Bible really that reliable? Is it that trustworthy? I mean, that is a very, very serious question that we need to be able to address. And as apologetics means to defend our faith, we need to have good answers for this. Uh, I know that many people will say a a phrase many times when they're confronted confronted by critics that, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, That is really not a good answer to give to critics, because they will view that as just being weak-willed. We've got reasons to believe. We've got evidence that's out there. Thus, that's one reason that we put this ministry together. And today, we're going to actually look at this lesson right here. This important topic, is the Bible reliable? Is it trustworthy? Because a lot of critics, a lot of professors at different universities where I have traveled on campuses and have been confronted by major um, university professors, history professors in particular, who have said that the Bible is not to be trusted. And one of the reasons when I question, because when they ask me questions uh, and I answer questions back using questions, it's, it's, I mean, Jesus did this many times. When he was asked a question, he responded with a question. And when people will say to me, you know, like, why do you think your Bible's reliable? Well, I love to ask them, well, why do you think it's not? And I want to find out what they're saying. And often what I have heard from history professors and and other uh, mostly educated people on this and highly educated people with degrees and stuff, they say that the Bible was done by oral tradition and it's like the game telephone. And telephone is um, not reliable. Now, let's just take a second here to explore that, that response that I've heard so many times. 
that the Bible was given by oral tradition and that it's like the game telephone. As a matter of fact, one history professor, um, as I was talking in particular at a university, they said that the Bible was done by oral tradition until 425 because the Hebrew people were agricultural people, just a bunch of farmers and, and shepherds. They didn't have a written language until 425 B.C. when Ezra after the Babylonian captivity uh, returns um, during the reign of the Persians and comes back to Jerusalem, and he actually had learned and formulated a language, a written language for their Hebrew language that they had. And he then uh, writes down the oral traditions, as this professor was telling me. They, he wrote down these oral traditions on scrolls and organized them, and that's how the Bible actually began first in print. Well, there's a lot wrong with that because, for one, the game telephone is not like oral tradition in cultures. Now, I know this is used frequently, so I want you to be able to understand this. The game telephone is not the same thing as a culture using oral tradition to record their history. Now, what I mean by that is this. If you've ever played the game Telephone, and it's a party game, it's been popular for for uh, probably over a century. Uh, it's a game where you have maybe so like uh, I, I've played it actually with forty people um, in a youth group one time when back in the Earth was cooling when I was a teenager. That the moderator or the leader of the of who's running the game gives one person whispers to one person a sentence, then that person whispers it to another person who whispers that sentence to another person who whispers it to another and so forth and so on to get to the 40th person or how many you have in your line here. And then at the end, it's whispered to them, the last person, and then they say the line out loud. And then the moderator or whatever reads what the original sentence was, and everybody has a good laugh about it because it's nothing like it started out to be. And people will many times view the Bible as the same way, that it was done by oral tradition like this. But now listen carefully. The, the party game telephone isn't part of the, of the fun of that game trying to change the sentence without getting caught doing it. I mean... That's half the fun right there. It's not intended to make sure it's perfect. If it was done by oral tradition, it would have been said not whisperedly. Um, it would have been given by a moderator to the first person. And by oral tradition, it would have been stated. And right there, the person listening to it, the moderator can listen to the statement as they give it. And then that person gives it to the next one. And the moderator is there. And the first person now hears it, too, as they're saying it. And each person, as it moves through the line, is saying it out loud. And it's being checked constantly. Actually, that's how oral tradition is. So at the end, it's going to be very accurate. As you look at cultures that have used oral tradition in recording their histories, and there's tribes and um, Native Americans who did this. There are African tribes who've done this. There have been some Asian groups that have done this, and even Polynesians have done this. It is extremely an accurate way of recording history. But, and I repeat this big three-letter word, but the Bible was not done in this manner. Now, as I said, many times it is taught at certain universities that the Hebrew people didn't have a written language. And because they didn't have a written language, uh, it had to be done through oral tradition. And they will always say that there's a bunch of errors that happen in this way. Well, 
It was not done that way. Because the Hebrew people, which they say didn't have a written language, they did have a written language. And history and archaeology has been showing this over the years to be uh, absolutely true. They had a written language. I mean, many skeptics will say that Moses couldn't have written the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because they didn't have a written language at the time of Moses at 1450 BC. Well, that is not true because we have now had discoveries that show that they did have a written language uh, going as far back as Moses and Joshua, Joshua in particular, who's a contemporary, lived at the same time of, of Moses. And it even says constantly throughout the book of, of Exodus, God saying to Moses, write this down. It wasn't memorize this to pass on in the game telephone. Write this down. And Joshua, write this down. So things like this happen. But let me just show you how wrong that opinion is, that the Hebrew people were so backwards, they couldn't have a written language, thus our Bible's not reliable. That argument there, let me just put that to rest here. Uh, this past winter, in 2022, we had a major discovery that happened um, in Israel, in the West Bank area, actually, on Mount Ebal. Now, on Mount Ebal, if you're not familiar with Mount Ebal, it's talked about in uh, towards the end of Deuteronomy and also in Joshua chapter 8 and, and others. It talks about where God is telling the, the um, Joshua, and well, he told Moses, but he tells Joshua to build an altar on Mount Ebal. Now, he also built one on Mount uh, Gerizim, but Mount Ebal. Now, that's right where, if you go to the New Testament, that's where the, the woman at the well was at Sychar. Um and um, today, that's the city of Nabulus that sits there today. You see, the city sits down at the valley base between these two mountains. On one side, you have Mount uh, Gerizim. On the other side, you have Mount Ebal. And on Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritans said, it was, and God did in the Old Testament, he, he pronounced blessings on the people on Mount Ebal. So it was a blessed place. And the Samaritans said, well, because God blessed the people here, this is the place we have to worship. That's why the woman at the well, if you recall, when she's talking to Jesus, says, you know, she separates the main question here um, to Jesus, cutting through all the red tape. Let's get right to it. She says to Jesus, you Jews say Jerusalem's where we're supposed to worship. We Samaritans say it's at Mount Gerizim. And Jesus goes on to say, hey, well, time's coming very soon and is here. When you're not going to worship in Jerusalem or here, you can worship God anywhere because God is spirit. But that's Mount Gerizim. Well, on the opposite side of the valley from Mount Gerizim is Mount Ebal. Now, that is the mountain of curses. Joshua is proclaiming curses on that mountain, and he builds an altar on that. Well, he covers the altar in plaster and then writes the law of God on this altar. Now, that's right out of the Bible here. That's right out of Joshua's got, uh, his book. Well, in 1970s, Adam Zertal, the late um, Israeli archaeologist, actually discovered the remains of Joshua's altar. And it's, it's interesting because he didn't know what he had at first. He thought it was a house or a fort. Um, it was an altar that was covered with plaster. And eventually, uh, with the help of some other uh, scholars, he figured out, oh, my gosh, this is the altar that Joshua built. This is amazing that 
what's really is fascinating because he wasn't a believer at this point. And he was like, oh my gosh, you didn't believe the Bible, but this is exactly right out of the Bible. The Exodus really did take place. Joshua and these guys really did live, and this really took place here at Mount Ebal. And as they were excavating this out, he found a little two centimeter by two centimeter square little object that was made of lead. Well, it it didn't seem to him to be important back in the 1970s. He tossed it in the rubbish pile. Well, it was recently removed from the rubbish pile um, as they were going through the rubbish piles. There's a lot of that going on in archaeology today. They're going back into rubbish piles because they're finding out that in the past they've been discarding things that today we know oh, these are very important. This is a case for that. And they found this little amulet. It's called the Mount Ebal Amulet. And it's E-B-A-L, Mount Ebal Amulet, or it's sometimes on other websites, it's called the Mount Ebal Tablet, either one. Um, but if you can look this up, you can read about the fascinating history of this thing as it was discovered and talked about this past winter. What it is, it's a little piece of lead that's been folded over. It's like a, um, it's, it's a piece that's folded like a book and it's folded right in the middle. So it's, it's uh, lead. They can't unfold it. If they do, they're going to break it. So it has been very carefully studied at different universities throughout uh, throughout Europe this winter and spring. And what they found out using special imagery, they have found out that there's uh, what because they've wondered what's on the inside of this thing that's folded over. Well, they found out it's Hebrew writing, Hebrew writing. And actually, what is in this uh, thing, this little amulet they, dates back. To 1400 BC, and that's been tested uh, in various means and been collaborated on that. So 1400 BC, this Hebrew writing reads, cursed, cursed, cursed by Yeva, or Yahweh, if you will. Uh, It has the actual proper name of God actually written on it, but it continues. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yeva, Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. That's what is inscribed on the lead inside this thing. And they found it by doing imagery, um, like X-ray, CT type scans through this. And they were able to find this. The point is, not only is it showing absolute proof that the Hebrew people did have a written language at 1400 BC and that the Hebrew people did have an exodus where they came in, that the Bible is absolutely correct, that they built an altar on Mount Ebal, Joshua did, and it also has the proper name of God as what we see in recorded scripture. I mean, all this was discovered. That's why this was so important in academia. But um, that right there should put uh, the case of the, the Hebrew people not having a written language to rest right there. But there's more. There's more. More pieces that we can go through showing you that the Hebrew people did have a written language, that what is often taught by certain history professors in secular universities and probably even a few Christian universities that the Hebrew people didn't have a written language at that time is wrong. Um, back in 2008 at Kirbet Kaafa, which is just to the west uh, of Jerusalem, over by very close to where David fought uh, Goliath in the Valley of Elah, they discovered in 2008 a ostracon, a broken piece of pottery with writing on it, that dates back to 1100 BC. Now that's been verified by different testing methods. It's it's clay pottery. Um, the thing is um, just a, a large piece 
uh, easily covers your entire hand, and it has writing on it. And part of the writing that is there, it's not totally complete, but what you can read on this thing, it talks about that the, the nation of Israel no longer has a judge. They now have a king. It's talking about the installation of the first king, which is King Saul. Now, King Saul does, does not, his name does not appear here, but it does talk about this event. Someone has eyewitnessed this event um, and has actually written on uh, this on an ostracon, which is how they used to f- write letters in ancient times. Those are the original post-it notes, broken pieces of pottery they would write letters on. It was very common. Thousands of these have been found all through the ancient world um, because papyrus and stuff was so expensive, they would use broken pieces of pottery. Um, Uh, to write receipts, they would write letters, they would write notes, etc. on. Yes, actually letters and stuff were written on these. And this is one of these pieces of broken pottery with writing on it, thus it's called an ostracon. But again, it dates back to 1100 B.C., which is actually right around the time Saul becomes king, according to the biblical chronological uh, order of events. But that's not all. Let me tell you another one. There's um, uh, what's called the Gezer calendar. The Gezer calendar was found in the city of Gezer. Um, It's one of the oldest Hebrew scripts ever found, and it details agricultural work being done in a 12-month period, thus calendar. It talks about each month what was being planted and stuff. Now, the thing is, uh, it's very easy to read. You can read this uh, old Hebrew script on this thing uh, very plainly, and it dates back to King Solomon around 950 BC. And it's on display in, um, I think this one is the actual pieces, and I think in Istanbul, in a museum there, there's a copy of it in in a couple of copies in different places in Jerusalem. Uh, If you go to Gezer, you can go up on top of the tell, and they have a replica of one sitting up on top of this tell. Um, It's just a small little piece of... um, of stone that has this this writing on it. And again, it's showing that the Hebrew people were writing things, in this case, what was going on in the agricultural um, planting during the a year-long month or a year-long uh, 12-month period in 950 BC. And we're not done giving you more because uh, there's so much. I mean, there are so many things. We don't have time to go through many of them. But let's talk about another one. And actually, this one, I want this one's a little different. You see, I've already shown you that there's evidence, and I mean irrefutable evidence, that the Hebrew people had a written language back way before 425 BC, over a thousand years beforehand. They had a written language. But now the questions critics will sometimes say to me is, well, Scripture was never written down. Okay, they were writing letters. They were writing love notes or receipts back and forth to people, but they never wrote down Scripture. Well, um, that's not true either. Um, some, Some skeptics say there was no Scripture even at that time. Well, um, in 1979, Dr. Gabriel Barkey, a very famous archaeologist, was digging uh, and excavating um, in burial tombs on the west side of the old city of Jerusalem. And he, long story short, he, with the help of a young boy who actually did the discovery, found two little scrolls made of silver. Now, they're tiny little things. Um, They are on display in the Jerusalem Museum. But you can look these up. They're called the Silver Scrolls, uh, just their common names. And um, Dr. Barkey had these dated, and uh, they date back to 650 B.C. 
Again, this is a couple hundred years before Ezra is even born. So, and it has the, uh, when studied, these are inscribed with scripture on them. Exactly, it's number six, 24 through 26 are found on these on these scrolls. And it reads, when translated, it reads thus, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Sound familiar? Yes, that's number 6, 24, 25, 26 in our Bible. If you take out an English standard or a New American Standard Bible, you're going to see it's almost the exact same wording. And uh, it's the doctrine is exactly the same. And so we have writings of Scripture dating back. So it was a major discovery seeing these two silver scrolls. Actually, one of the scrolls also has um, Deuteronomy actually written on it also as well. Uh, to show you another piece of evidence showing that the Hebrew people had uh, written language and were writing things out and that the Bible is true are what's called the Lachish letters. There have been many of these found at the city of Lachish. It's about 30 miles to the west of Jerusalem. It was the site of, it was one of the most powerful cities in all the land of Judah and a very formidable city on a tell with double walls around it. Well, the Assyrians conquered it, but then the Jews, after the Assyrians left, the, the Jews rebuilt the city, and then the Babylonians came and destroyed it again. And um, But there they found uh, different archaeologists throughout times, dating back even to the 1930s, um, they found little ostracons of letters, many of them, just personal letters that were that were sent out, uh, a correspondence between Lachish, the city here, and Jerusalem themselves. And they date, um, using different methods to date these, between 700 and 580 B.C. Again, this is over 150 years before Ezra is even there. So we can see that the critics' stories and the critics' ideas of how to uh, to say that the Bible is mythical and stuff does not, that, that the Hebrew people didn't have a written language is totally erroneous. They are so wrong on what they're saying here. Uh, just for instance, one of these letters um, was discovered in 1935, and it has, uh, it contains a report, an actual report um, from a guy by the name, we don't know anything about him, but it has his name, Hoshaiah is his name, and he's writing to his superiors. It has to do with military matters. Other letters uh, reference have references dealing with Jeremiah, who's at the temple, um, and, and other biblical events taking place in biblical characters. And some of these letters were written just before Lachish fell under the Babylonians, obviously, of Jeremiah and stuff were being mentioned, and that would be around 587 B.C., um, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the area. And again, showing that there's evidence that that the Bible can be trusted, that the Hebrew people definitely had a written language. So now we come to, that's that's the first part of this, uh, this podcast I want to talk about today. Now, the second part is this one. Is there any evidence scriptures were preserved accurately? Now that we've established that the Hebrew people had a written language, is there any evidence that what was written in scripture was preserved accurately? Well, there must be, or I would have made a part two to this thing, correct? Um, a question that often comes up, and I hear this frequently, and this is a very good question. We should be able to give an answer for this at any time when someone comes up to us. And here's the question. Is the Bible we have today word for word perfect with the ancient Hebrew scrolls? Now, that's a great question. 
I get asked that frequently. Is the Bible we have today word for word perfect with the ancient Hebrew scrolls? The simple answer to this is no, it is not. Whoa, what did you say, Michael? It's not? No, it's not. Because ancient Hebrew has no vowels, for one thing. It was read also from right to left. And those of you who have taken a foreign language, uh, maybe French, uh, Spanish, or Russian, or whatever, German or anything like this, or whatever language, Chinese, you'll often notice when you try to translate, you can't do it word for word, or the wording doesn't make sense. English is the most screwed up language there is. It's a hodgepodge of different languages all compiled together. What do I mean by this? Well, let me just give you a simple, simple example to explain what I'm talking about. Uh, This is very subtle, but it'll get the point across. Let's take a look at Genesis 1.1. In the oldest manuscripts we have of Hebrew, it reads this way. In the beginning, created God the heavens and the earth. Did you catch the order of that sentence? In the beginning, created God the heavens and the earth. Now, that's how the Hebrew, if you transliterate it into English, that's how it would read. Now, that's in the oldest manuscripts. Now, let's take a look at, say, a very accurate translation that we have today, a New American Standard. Many Bible scholars consider it one of the more accurate word-for-word translations or formal uh, translations there are. Look how this one reads. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's probably the way that you memorized it. Most translations have it written just like that because it makes sense in English. But it's a little different than it was in the Hebrew. So no, it's not word for word, but the doctrine is the same. The arrangement of the words are a little different. Let me give you another example. Uh, Let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Now, I'm going to read this one first out of the New American Standard, because this will help you be familiar with the verse I'm talking about. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we have of the book of Isaiah, this is the way it is read. Therefore, will give the Lord, he, you, a sign, behold, the virgin shall become pregnant and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You notice it's not word for word exactly the same, but the doctrine is all the same. Now, that's with Hebrew. Hebrew is how the Old Testament uh, was written. Though there's a few places in Daniel and Ezra that are Chaldean, mostly it is in Hebrew dialect and, and language. Now let's talk about the New Testament for a minute. The New Testament was all written in Greek, and it is read left to right, just as we read in English. But again, the placement of the words, because it's a different language, emphasis and predicates and things are, are moved around. So let's take a look at a very familiar verse, again, that most of you will be familiar with. I'm going to read this out of the New American Standard Bible, and it reads, this is John 3, 16. You all know this verse probably. It reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the verse that Martin Luther says is the Bible in one sentence. So this is the verse. Everybody's familiar with this. Now, I'm going to read this to you 
uh, translating it from the Greek into English, word by word, going through this. Now, notice the difference. It's not word for word the same. It reads, Thus for loved God, the world that the Son, the only begotten, he gave, so that everyone believing in him not should perish, but should have life eternal. You notice it's not the same, but the doctrine is exactly the same. That's how this is. So our Old Testament manuscripts that we have, the oldest manuscripts, most reliable manuscripts we have, and comparing it to like a New American Standard Bible or an interlinear Bible or even a New King James or an English Standard, you're going to see it is very, very similar. Uh, word arrangements will be different, and there's differences between English Standard and New American Standard. For one, the readability. Uh, New American Standard Bible is considered uh, on a collegiate reading level, where an English Standard is more like a grade 8 reading level. So they're going to make some difference, some changes in that, but the doctrines stay the same. Now, wouldn't it be cool if we could have some evidence showing that our our Bibles are really accurate? That if we had an old, old copy of the, say, the Old Testament to compare our Old Testament that we have, our Old Covenant with that one? Well, it just so happens we have stuff like that. One of the most famous is called the Masoretic Manuscript. Now, I'm going to just stop here for a second and tell you something. I challenge you, whenever you get a Bible, and those of you who have more than one different translation at your house— um, Read the preface of your Bible. Maybe when the sermon's really boring one day and this pastor's as dry as dust, just pull it out, read the preface of your Bible, because it will tell you in there about, you know, how they're going to use the, um, and pronounce the name of God, how they're going to spell it in here and stuff. And, but also it tells you how they put the thing together. And most of our Bible translations are based on this ancient manuscript that's called the Masoretic Manuscript. Now, what is this thing? Well, you see, this dates back to the end of the Roman Empire. There was a group of Jewish scribes. Scribes are people who copied Scripture. And they sought to preserve the Holy Scripture, the Holy Word of God. They wanted to preserve it for all time. And these started during um, the Roman period, and it continued till the end of the Roman Empire and getting into the, the Dark Ages. Well, one of these guys... Um, was named uh, Aaron ben Asher. He was what we call a Masoret. Masorets were scribes that dedicated their life and their career. These were extremely intelligent and talented people. Not everybody could be a Masoret. Um, they were special scribes, and their whole function, their purpose in life, was to make exact copies of the Word of God. So exact were they? And so serious about the holy word of God, so not to blaspheme God, they, by distorting his word, they put together like 19 different major steps that they had to follow when they would make a copy of one of the books of the Bible. That's what the Masoretes were. I mean, they would do it, just a couple of ideas here that they do. We'll have to have another lesson on this about how we got the Bible and talk more about the Masoretes. But one of the things that they did was, instead of copying a sentence at a time, they copied it letter by letter. They would take an original manuscript and they would copy it onto a, a new one, 
on, on another scroll, and they would do it letter by letter. They even counted how many letters were in each book. And when they finished, they counted up how many letters they had, and it had to be exact. If it wasn't, if they were one letter off, it would be destroyed. They even counted the spaces between the words. I mean, they had so many rules. Even the ink that they used was made to a special formula. They had rules like you can't dip your pen, uh, the stylus, into ink when you're starting to write the name of God. Uh, I mean, they had they might smear something. They didn't want that. They had so many rules um, set up that when they finished making a copy, it was no longer called a copy. It was called an original. So Aaron Ben Asher decided, to, as what his job was, he was going to make a copy. But this day... Um, at this time of his life, he wanted to make a really special one. So what he did, he went back through the archives of the libraries and stuff, and he found the oldest copy, or one of the oldest copies he could find, that were made. It dated back almost a 1,000 years to 100 A.D. 100 A.D. was when this copy was made. He pulls this one out, and he makes his copy based on that one. And Aaron Ben Asher's manuscript, because he's a Masoret, it's called uh, has survived antiquity. It is in a museum, the and it is studied. It's been now digitally mastered and everything. It this Masoretic manuscript is available today, and most of our Bibles are based upon this. So we have our Bibles are based upon not a sixteen eleven or a nineteen twenty version or something like this. It is from a a copy made from a one hundred A.D. copy from the time of the apostles. John the Apostle is still alive at 100 AD. So from that period, they have an Old Testament copy that they used. And our Old Testaments that we have today are based on that. That's how accurate this thing is. And using the methods that the Masoretes had, it's not really considered a copy. It's an original. Though the original, I mean, let's be frank, all the original manuscripts, the original autographs from God, have disappeared throughout time. We don't have them, but we do have these copies, and these copies were made very seriously because to to willfully or even make a mistake of copying something in a Bible, that could be considered blasphemy um, and could result in your death because this is the Holy Word of God, and you can't change the Word of God. But wouldn't it be cool if we could have, say, another text to compare this with? It'd be nice if we could get one that was even older, um, before 100 A.D., of, say, parts of the Old Testament. Well, there is such a thing. It's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. I have a copy here in my studio. This contains just the Torah. Now, we already mentioned the Samaritans before, talking about Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Well, the Samaritans only took the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't accept the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, but they did take Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as Holy Scripture. And they copied these, and this was part of their beliefs. And um, there was one that was made around 200 B.C. This is 200 years before Christ. They have found, uh, or there was one of these Samaritan Pentateuchs. As I say, Samaritans are still around to this day. Now, this copy 
that was based, like how the Masoretic used one, that um, an Old Testament copy that dated to 100. This one dates, that was 100 AD. This is 200 BC. So it's 300 years older than that. And the thing is, it does, um, it was copied. And some, we don't know who did it, but a, a Samaritan made copies of it around the same time as Asher ben, um, ben Asher was, was doing his work. About the same time period, around 1000 AD, they made a copy of this Samaritan Pentateuch. So it's basically pretty close to being the same age as the Masoretic text. Now, if you compare it, if you take the Samaritan Pentateuch and you compare it to the Masoretic Pentateuch, you're going to see that it's extremely similar. The only differences you're going to find are going to have to do with grammar, semantics, talk about Mount Gerizim, because the Samaritans considered that the holy place where worship and God was to be, um, and where they built a temple and how they worship. That's the only changes you see in this thing. It's the only thing. Now, let me give you an example. Um, I'm going to read something from the Masoretic text, a passage in the book of Leviticus. And listen carefully to what I read, because then afterwards I'm going to read it out of the Samaritan uh, Pentateuch. So let's take a look at this. In the Masoretic text, Leviticus 19.2 reads, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, Adonai, your Elohim, am holy. Now, that is very similar to what you see in New American Standard also. Um, it would say, I, the Lord your God, am holy, because we're using the names of God here. But that's out of the Masoretic text. Now, let me read you the same passage, Leviticus 19.2, out of the Samaritan text. Notice the similarities and, two, the differences. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Yisrael, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Shema, your Elohim am holy. Did you notice it's basically the same thing? There's no changes in the doctrine. He's telling the people of Israel um, to, to tell everybody in the, in, of the sins of all the congregation of Israel that they are to be holy for the Lord God is holy. They're both saying the exact same thing doctrinally. The spelling of names is a little different, but it's saying the same thing. Isn't it cool that the Samaritan Pentateuch is so similar to our Masoretic text that we have? Now, you might be thinking, well, that's good. I, I wish we had something like this for the New Testament um, and, and maybe another copy of, of like the Old Testament. Well, there is another one for the Old Testament, actually, I, I should bring up before we leave this. There is what's called the, Sept, uh, the Septuagint. It dates back to 250 B.C. You could buy these in stores. I have a copy of uh, Septuagint right behind me. What's the Septuagint? Well, when Alexander the Great conquered the world, one of the things that he did is he made it a law that all the world would come under a common language, Greek. You see, prior to him, if you're going to go visit somebody in Greece or in Italy or in Spain or in Ethiopia, and you're going to go there, you'd have to speak that language of that country. Because every country, every people basically had their own languages. Alexander made everybody, what we call it today, and it's called Hellenized the world, he made everybody learn and speak Greek. Which was really interesting because God had this plan for the gospel coming through Jesus Christ that the disciples would take it to all the world. They didn't have to memorize all the different languages of the world. They were taught Greek. Just by going to school, you learned Greek. And so they could speak Greek and go anywhere in the Roman Empire. 
See how cool is that? Well, after Alexander, um, about 100 years or so after Alexander the Great, the Hebrew people thought it would be wise to take the Old Testament, which they had at that point, um, the, the Word of God, if you will, and instead of having it just in Hebrew and Chaldean, let's put it into Greek so it could be read everywhere. Let's preserve it in Greek. Now, this is a very serious undertaking because to the Jews, to the Hebrew people, we're, ta- we're talking about the word of holy God. We cannot blaspheme this. So what they did is they got um, 72, some, some um, studies will say it was 70, but 72 um, experts in the Jewish language, and these were rabbis. Um, people who are very serious, they memorized not only the Old Testament, but they taught it. And they got together, and because there was like 70, it's in Roman numerals, that's LXX, and that's the abbreviation for the Septuagint. If you ever see something talking about the Old Testament or something, it has a capital L, capital X, capital X. That's the symbol for the Septuagint. Um, So what they did is they took the Holy Scripture, and they carefully, over a long period of time, they translated it word by word into Greek. And when they did this, they then completed a Greek copy. We call it the Septuagint. This was the Bible of the day that was being used during the time of Jesus and the apostles. It's still used in many Hebrew synagogues, even to this day. You can find a copy of the Septuagint in there. The Septuagint very closely parallels the Masoretic text, because these were Jewish scholars and and rabbis who put it together. Now, let me go back. Let's take a verse that we looked at already. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, I'm going to read it this time out of the English Standard Version first. And we've already read it out of um, a different translation, New American Standard. Let's go to the English Standard. I'm going to read you this passage. You're going to see it's basically the same. But then I'm going to read it out, um, out of the Septuagint, translating it from the Greek into English. Now, here we go. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, that's the English Standard Version. Now, let's take the Septuagint and let's read this and putting it into the English format. Um, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the womb and shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. You see, I just read practically the same thing. Uh, The doctrine is exactly the same. And by the way, speaking of the doctrine of this, there are many skeptics today, and even some Christians, and even some pastors who will teach that Isaiah 7.14 is not talking um, about a virgin, that the word in the Hebrew is the word Alma, and that actually is the word for young maiden. So they say that um, this verse should say, behold, the young maiden shall conceive. Well, that is not correct, because even the Hebrew rabbis in 250 BC, when they translated this into English, they used the word virgin um, in the Greek to refer to it. There's a difference between a virgin and a young woman. So if you hear this, and every Christmas you hear some sermon on this some, from someplace saying that the virgin is actually just the wording for a young woman. No, Alma can mean a young woman, but it is also the word for virgin. And in the Old Testament, that is how it is always used. So these Hebrew scholars who put together Septuagint, 
made it very plain this was talking about a miraculous event. The virgin shall conceive and give birth. So moving on. Wow, I wish we could have a copy of the whole Bible. You know, we've been talking about the Old Testament. I wish there was something we had with the New Testament. That would be so helpful for us. Well, guess what? There is. It's called the Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus is a very interesting book, and the history of this is fascinating. They should make a small little movie on this. In 1844, this is A.D., 1844 A.D., a guy by the name of Lobagat Friedrich Constantin von Tischendorf. Now, there's a name for you. He was one of the most leading Bible scholars of his day. He visited St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai Peninsula, um, because he heard rumors that there were ancient manuscripts there, and he was hoping he would find ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament and New Testament books. So he got permission, and he did go there. And he looked, and he looked, and he looked, and he wasn't finding anything. I mean, there's quite a library at this place. Um, they have a lot of manuscripts, but he wasn't finding what he was looking for of Old Testament books. Um so he was really getting frustrated. And one evening, as um, it was starting to get cold, um, a steward came in and started to build a fire to uh, warm up the room. And he took the waste can that was sitting there, taking the papers that were in the waste can to start some kindling to get some fire burning. Uh, Tischendorf noticed that what he was taking out of the waste can looked like old manuscripts. So he got up, walked over, and took a handful of these out of the waste can. And then he strolled back to his chair looking at these, and he realized, oh my gosh, these are Greek pages of the Old Testament, like a Septuagint type thing. So he gathered what he found of these, and he uh, took them back, uh, back home, and put them at the University of uh, Leipzig, and then he returned again uh, twice, and the second time he came, he couldn't find any. Uh, he returned again in 1859, and then he made an even more remarkable discovery. The day before he was scheduled to leave, again, he was not finding anything. He was not having success, and he was just about to give up, start packing his bags to leave. A steward came in, and who knew what he was looking for, and said, I want to show you something. And he took him over to like a closet area and opened up this closet and handed him from down at the bottom, hidden underneath some material, handed him a red cloth that was wrapped over something. So he unwraps this and it's a manuscript. He opens it and Tischendorf, to his amazement, was looking at not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament and it was in excellent reading condition. This text became known as the Sinaiticus. It was eventually given to the Russian Tsar Alexander II, but in 1933, to assure its safety and to preserve it, it was purchased by the British government for $500,000. It is, now here's, what is this Sinaiticus? It's a fourth century Greek copy of the Bible. Old and New Covenants. And the thing is, it is very, very similar to what we have today. Oh, wow. That is really cool, you might be thinking, to have something from the 4th century. Wow, but boy, I wish we could have copies that were much older than that. Well, in 1940s and 1950s, there was a discovery, probably the greatest archaeological discovery 
yet to ever happen. It was the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered right around the Dead Sea in many caves. And these caves, uh, they have found, there's thousands of caves around the Dead Sea in this mountainous area, in this dry and uh, arid land there. It is very, very dry and hardly any rainfall ever comes there. And in these caves, there have been found clay pots with different books in them. And in those books, there's books of poetry, there's books of writing, there's accounting uh, um, pages and stuff, but there's also the books of the Old Testament. And not just one book, there have been multiple copies of books found. We believe the Essenes are the people who did this, but it's still sort of a mystery. And why they put them in these clay pots and hid them in these caves, no one knows. There's just theories about it, but no one knows for certain. But the thing is, they have been found, and there have been thousands of fragments of these things. Some of them are so falling apart just to hold them, they break uh, into pieces. But in 1947, a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah was discovered by two teenage boys in what is called today Cave One. And to this day, as far as I'm aware, five different copies of the book of Isaiah alone have been found. But this scroll that they found dated back, uh, it's been tested by different things. It's on animal skin and ink and everything can be tested too. And there's a lot of styles of testing this thing. And it's been verified to have been written no later than 125 BC. So we have an entire book of Isaiah. Now, this is so interesting and I... I I don't know if this will give you a goosebump, but I, whenever I think about this, I get it. A lot of people say that Jesus is not the Messiah because these Old Testament prophecies that were written, especially in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah contains many Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and the death of the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, that he would be a healing Messiah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and all these things. That all that was written after uh, 300 to 400 AD to make it look like Jesus was the Messiah. Well, I've come across professors and scholarly people who have said that to me, that these old, uh, the prophecies and things that we read in the Old Testament were written after the fact of Jesus by Christians under the orders of Constantine to make Jesus appear to be this Messiah. They are so wrong because the Dead Sea Scrolls prove without a shadow of a doubt these things were written at least 125 years before Jesus' ministry. Some books go back to even further than that, to 200, to possibly even 300 B.C. So skeptics today say the New Testament wasn't written until 325 under Constantine's order, 325 A.D. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls blow us out of, the, out of the water. But, you know, that's not the only thing we have. There are so many ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that have been found. One is called the P52 manuscript. It's the oldest parchment of the New Testament ever found. It's a small little fragment. It contains a copy of the book of John, chapter 18. It's verses 31, 32, and 33. It's a codex, not a scroll. It's written on papyrus. It's a page from a book, in other words. Most scholars date this around to be 100 to 150 AD. Did you catch that? 100 to 150 AD. If it was written at 100 AD, the Apostle John is still alive when this was written. Now, I'm not saying that John wrote that. I mean, it is possible, but it's un unlikely. But it is possible because this manuscript, this, this P52 manuscript, was in existence when John was still alive. And it's 
when Jesus is standing before Pilate, the, the conversation is what's recorded here. Or here's another one. How about the P39 manuscript? It's a copy of John chapter 8. It's not all there, but it's pretty much of this, uh, a whole page is almost preserved on this. It dates back to about 190 to 200 AD. Now remember, I just told you, skeptics say that the Bible, the New Testament wasn't in existence until after 325. Then explain how the P39 manuscript has John chapter 8 practically uh, the exact same doctrine as we have today. It is the same doctrine we have today. Matter of fact, there's fragments on this that you can still read, translating it from Greek into English, and it reads, Jesus is the light of the world. It also has this written, I am he who sent me. It also reads, my father testifies of me. And it also has on this, this papyrus here, his hour had not yet come. These are f- these are statements right out of our Bible in John chapter 18, verses 14 and 18, and 18 through 21, because it's a codex. It's written on both sides. You can, you can read this thing. But it's, it's the same doctrine we have today. Or how about the P46 manuscripts? The P46 manuscripts were discovered. Um, they're in two places today. The, it's, it, it's, it's a, a codex, a book. And it's been divided. Half of it is in Belfast, Ireland. Another half is at the University of Michigan. But the thing is, it's almost a totally complete copy of the New Testament. It contains Paul's writings. Now, here's the thing. When was it written? Scholars date this. And these are even secular scholars dating this. It comes out to be around 175 to 200 AD. 175 to 200 AD. And it is practically the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, I have a copy of the first page of this from the book of Hebrews, the P46 manuscript of the first page of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, I would challenge you right now to open up your Bible to chapter 1 of Hebrew, because I want to read you what this reads, this manuscript reads, transliterated into English, and let you read it. Um, You can read along with me and see how similar this is to your Bible. This is off the P46 manuscript. It reads, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on I, having become so much better than the angels, to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. That's just the first four verses, or first four sections, uh, sentences, basically, of that passage. It's basically the exact same thing we read in like a New American Standard today. So our Bible is very accurate. Oh, but I got to tell you one more before I leave. Another discovery that was made recently, down by the Dead Sea in a place called En Gedi, they were excavating, oh, actually not excavating, they were digging, planting date palms, um, putting an irrigation system in this area to grow date palms. And as they were digging in here back um, in the 1970s, they came across some mosaic tile they realized there's an ancient structure here underneath all this dirt and sand. So archaeologists were called in and they dug this out and it was a synagogue. They have no history of it, no knowledge, 
No mention of it in anything we ever have, but this is definitely a Jewish synagogue. From the style of the the floor, and it's a beautiful, the entire floor is intact. It is gorgeous. Uh, It has pictures of birds. It has names of the patriarchs of the Hebrews and stuff all in this. Um, As they were excavating this out, they found over in the Torah closet, every synagogue has a Torah closet where they keep scrolls. Um, This place had been burned. And in here they found a burnt scroll. It looked just like a piece of wood. It's not very long. It's only about maybe, oh, six to eight inches long. looks just like a piece of burnt wood, but it's an ancient scroll. Wisely, in the 1970s, they didn't try to to do much with it because the technology, they couldn't unroll it. It was burnt, and they just stored it. But in the uh, around two, 2015, they took this thing out and they started doing special photography by the microns to its thickness with uh, something like CTs and x-rays and stuff. And they actually were able then to get pages of this and put the whole scroll out uh, and put the whole thing together so you can read it. When they put this all together and they started reading it, because you can read the Hebrew words on it very very easily in these images that were just made. And by the way, the Smithsonian Magazine around 2015 has a whole article on this. Um, that's not a Christian organization, but they wrote an article describing this. And what they found out they had was the Book of Leviticus, an ancient copy of the Book of Leviticus. It has been digitally formatted. It is legible. You can read it. Even the paragraph spacing in this scroll are the same as what you see in a new American Standard Version. That is amazing. It's the second oldest Torah scroll ever discovered. It dates between, here you go, 200 to 330 AD. It is such, it's, it's a total complete scroll and they have this, only the Dead Sea Scrolls are older. So folks, our Bible is accurate. Our Old Testament is accurate. Our New Testament is accurate. There is abundant archaeological information showing that the Hebrew people indeed had a written language dating all the way back to Moses and Joshua. Different events throughout the Bible have been collaborated through archaeology and the writings that they have found on ostracons and things. And our translations we have today, no, they're not word for word because you're going from one language into another one, but the doctrine is the same. Our translations vary, but rarely do they vary in doctrine. Scholars do consider some of the most accurate versions of our Bible to be like the interlinear Bible. Most scholars say it's probably the most accurate version we have though most people have never heard of it, though you can buy it, Um, or the New American Standard Bible. I prefer the 1977 edition. Um, It's not politically correct. It just states it the way it's written. The New King James Bible is also one of the more accurate ones, as is the English Standard. But the doctrines that we see in these are accurate. God's Word has been preserved. I mean, he promised us in his Word that his Word would last forever. And that's true. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this this little lesson here as we've gone through this. And I hope you've this has added to your faith and given you some ammunition that when you come across critics, you know, don't don't browbeat them. Just give them evidence. A lot of times ask questions. Why do they believe what they believe? And then explain why do you believe what you believe? And when I have been in situations like this and people have asked me, how come I believe that the Bible's accurate? And I said, well, 
let me sh let me show you what we have here with archaeology and from these manuscripts. And a lot of times it really, you know, puts them in their place um, in a polite way. We don't want to be mean. We don't want to be, um, you know, uh, very harsh to them. We're supposed to treat them with grace is what God tells us to do. Unbelievers, treat them with grace. Be kind to them. Don't browbeat them and insult them and stuff. Just explain why you believe, which is what this ministry is all about. So I hope you've gained something from here to help you in your uh, defending the what you believe and it, that it added faith, um, adds to your faith to make you stronger in your belief in God. Well, until we meet again, take care and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.